November 11th, 2021. I'm Avi. And I'm Ron. And this is Accent Insights. Big news in the real estate world. Uh, Zillow was buying homes. They were an iBuyer. They were buying homes. Their plan was to, to fix them up, sell them for a profit, and they were relying heavily on the accuracy of their estimates, of this estimate, so that they could predict what the price would be in uh, three to six months. How did that turn out, Ron? Well, no, apparently not that well. And I want to be clear, actually, we don't know for a fact that they were relying uh, on their estimate. We don't know for a fact that they were they were using internally the same data they were giving to the rest of the world, you know, as a come on to get them on their website. But they, they were using some kind of data. They did have a big database of people who search and, you know, whatever they were using to get their estimates in the first place. They have loads and loads of data. It's like probably the most popular consumer facing real estate site. And it is largely driven by this notion of his estimate where they can tell you the value of a property. So whether whether they use that alone or some estimate plus internally, they, as Avi said, got into the business of buying homes. They bought thousands of them put big money behind this. And then, of course, the news a few weeks ago, you know, Zillow's going to pause their buying until they can clear some of their inventory. And then the, the news this week, uh, oh, no, Zillow's actually getting out of that business. And I think they dumped like 2,000 homes this week. on At, at a loss. And at a uh, loss. and as the CEO of Zillow said, and, and the, their co-founder, uh, the quote is, we've determined the unpredictability in forecasting home prices far exceeds what we anticipated so, so that's an interesting quote. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, they've been doing this estimate since uh, I think 2006, and they, they've been, at least since 2006, and they, they've been uh, sort of promoting this, and people rely on this number wrongly, <laughs> rely on this number. And this wasn't in a market like Boston, where every home is different. They were launching this experiment where they're putting their own money where their mouth was, in, in cities where it's a little bit more cookie cutter, like Phoenix, um, where there's lots of houses, lots of comps. Um, lots of data, and the data is, is is extensive of what they have. They also have uh, you know teams of PhD uh, data scientists. So I, I think sort of the takeaway here, and what we're going to talk about, and we can talk about Zillow a little bit more, but sort of the takeaway here is pricing is hard, and that's a a, a big part of what we do. Right. No. So we we are in full agreement with uh, with the CEO of Zillow. Pricing is hard, and, and probably what he what he and his company should have done is gotten some very seasoned local real estate uh, agents and brokers to help them with the pricing because the hubris of of what they were doing. I mean, it is interesting, right? Because we, for for a long time, we struggle with that estimate in a way because people come to us and say, oh, you gave me a competitive market analysis with lots of data and analysis and and you're you're recommending a number that, but Zillow said my house is worth, you know, that number times, you know, one and a quarter or something. Or sometimes buyers come and say, Zillow said it's less. It's very hard to deal with this notion of like, yeah, Zillow's not that accurate in our market. I, my assumption was always they must be more accurate in a market like Phoenix, where lots of houses look exactly the same, you know, a few blocks over, and you have much more perfect comps. But, you know, even there, as Avi said, it's harder than it looks. So we, we were talking about this earlier before we started recording and, you know, pricing is is so tricky. You know, when we do a, a market analysis for people, 
you know, we look at the comps, we like to find the most recent comps we can. And there is, it's, my kids have heard this so many times, they will tell you, you know, who sets the price? The market sets the price, not not the seller. And, you know, it's it, it's a little bit of a broken record, but it's it's not really that there is a market price, I think. I think that there is a market price range. And I, I like to think of it as like a fuzzy dot. You know, and our goal is to get you toward the upper end of that dot and not at sort of the bottom end of that dot. And when we talk about pricing strategy, you know, it's all about, you know, getting you into that upper range. Um, yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and that's why pricing right is, is so important. Whether you're in a buyer's market or a seller's market, you might have, or a balanced market, you might have different strategies uh, for how to achieve that. Um, but, you know, we get interesting data here too that's very specific to our local market. In terms of the fuzzy dot, it really comes down to the advice we give our buyers when putting in an offer is this is what it's worth to you, uh, and that should inform your offer. And to the sellers, it's the aggregate of each person saying this is what it's worth to me. And you know, sometimes we have we have listings that will get you know ten plus offers, uh, and those are interesting uh, for the data that it that it reveals about how different people will uh, value the same property. It's so, true. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, before we before we talk about that, I want to say, like, some of what you're saying is, you know, the result of people's experience, right? The people there, there are people who've been bid out a bunch of times. We always know who's sort of new to the market. Those are the people who are like, oh, I'd like to pay a little bit less. Um, you know, in our market, it's competitive. And that does that usually doesn't work. I mean, sometimes you wind up with a good confluence of factors, good timing, and maybe you can get there. But in a competitive situation, you know, when you have people who who've been bid out, they're the ones who have figured out like what we always say, go to the limit of your of your comfort zone. And and as Avi said, what's it worth to you? Like, how will you feel the next day? Right. Will you feel disappointed that you didn't give a little bit more money that you had? Or will you feel upset that you paid too much? Right. You want to find that that edge of indifference and, and wind up there. But some of that is influenced by what else is on the market, right? I mean, you know, some of it is, inf is influenced by what, hap what has happened in the past. And people are pretty smart in our market. They know what things are worth. But, you know, I've had situations where I've recommended, I, I, I have a, a condo under agreement now on Parkvale. And, you know, I told my sellers, look, this is where I think you're going to be range-wise. And this is where I think we're going to end up. Um, but I don't want to price it for you until I see what else is on the market that week. Because that will also influence how people see the value of of your offering. Absolutely, and uh, it's local in in geography, also local temporally in time, uh, right? In, in time, the, the specific week uh, very, at a very tactical level, and also the season. How you view a three bedroom in November is different than how you how you'd view a three bedroom in uh, April. And it's also different from how you view a two bedroom in those same time periods. You know, real estate is a very local item, both uh, geographically and temporally. Right, right. And and with respect to, you know, what does the competition look like? You know, there's competition among the buyers for, for a hot property, but sometimes the properties are competing for the buyers themselves. And, and when that happens, you know, that can work out great if you're a buyer. Um, and it can work out not that great if you're a seller, unless you play it just right. You've got to think fourth dimensionally, Marty. <laughs> exactly. Exactly, Doc. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, you know, like I, when we put this unit on Park Vale, 
you know, I had two comps around the corner, basically. I had one half a block away. You know, my, my, mine was a three bedroom, two bath with, with a parking spot. I had a three bedroom, two bath that was a little bit bigger, half a block away with no parking. Um, it was on paper bigger, but it read not that different than mine. And, you know, they priced it at the high end of that value dot. And I told my sellers, I said, I really want you guys, you know, to look like a bargain compared to this unit. And similarly, there was a there was a two bedroom unit, you know, a block away. It was also very nice two bedroom, two bath, had covered parking, so it had some some nice features and it, similar size as again. And um, you know, we priced against that, and we we priced at the same price as that two bedroom unit. You know, so we looked on the market like, oh, there you can get a two bedroom for for nine twenty five as an asking price. You can get this three bedroom for nine twenty five as an asking price, and um, that strategy worked out great for my sellers. We, you know, we went under agreement on that first weekend. We had multiple offers. The one half a block away still on the market. Um, they're on their second price drop now. They are down from an original asking price of a million two sixty seven down to a million one. So they've dropped over $150,000 in a month. And that's amazing. And, and you've saved your, your, your client from, from that heartache and that, that hassle and from those carrying costs, to be quite frank. No, not, not only that, but we had, you know, we had what I like to call the party. We underprice and we, we get excitement and people come in and bid up over your asking price. It's, I call that the party. Now it's a party, right? And then we go in and we ask for our best and final offer. And people think about really, what's this worth to me? And uh, we, we tend to do better, right? So if we set our expectations you know, in the right place, and then the offers come in and they match that, you're, you, you know, sellers are happy. Um, the sellers you know, in that other unit, look, they came on the market October 1st. It's not that long ago. Will they find their buyer? Probably. Right, but they're they're with a hundred and fifty-seven thousand dollar price drop. They are constantly having to readjust their expectations, and they're going to wind up at the lower end of that fuzzy dot because they didn't think about underpricing because they didn't think about the rest of the market at that time. It's just it's not as simple as it seems. You know, you take nice photos, yes. You stage it, yes. But the pricing and the timing and how those two things relate to each other very important. Yeah, absolutely. Back to the pricing as well of sort of what's the distribution of how that looks. Um, we've had a bunch of parties. Uh, I guess this is the safest kind of party to have in the COVID times. Um, but you know, we, we've seen sort of this pattern time and time again, when, when we have these sort of party listings where we price it well, we get a lot of excitement, we get a lot of people and you get a, a distribution of what those prices look like. Um, and how do we get to that top of the dot? So in the case where someone overprices, uh, it sort of sits and uh, there could be various reasons, but you know, an example that you gave, yours was a very similar one that with the right pricing got the party and went above. So th that other one probably could have had the party. It probably we, could have. Yeah. It probably could have. So it yeah. wasn't a, a problem with the category. It was a problem with the marketing and the pricing with the other one. And they're like, you know, your clients were lucky to have you and, and your advice. Um, but what I want to talk about next is what's the distribution of offers when we do have the party? Um, what I've seen is usually, so let's say out of a group of 10 offers, uh, I see usually like one or two that are going to be at the asking price or possibly even slightly below. These inevitably have a discount brokerage attached to them. Uh, <laughs> then there's going to be, um, I'd say, four or five that are, say, one standard deviation above in price. And so, you know, for, for a listing that's, say, listed at $1 million, 
let, let's say that, that there's four or five are going to be around, you know, a million 40, a million 50. And then you're going to have one or two that are some amount over that. So this sort of group, they're going to be like a million 70. And then you're going to have, if you're lucky, one or two that are like, you know what, we want to win this at any cost. Um, and they're going to just say, okay, you know what? 1.1 and a quarter over and no contingencies. And those are the two that are, are going to, one of those two is going to win it. Right. And I think, so, and what you're, what you're pointing out, I think that's exactly right. There's always the one or two that are sort of, you know, new and green and, 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 you know, look for the bargain price. Oh, you know, you, you asked a million, I'll give you, you know, 950, uh, because I don't know this market. I don't know how things work, but the, what you lose when you overprice is you lose those people. Right, you lose the ones who are going to come in under, and they're important to the process. Right, if you want to get to the top of the fuzzy dot, um, the bargain hunters are important because when you go back for a best and final round, you know the people in that last round don't know what your distribution of offers is. You know, they only know there were three offers or five offers, or you know, the more the merrier. And you know, then they really it challenges them to think about what's this worth to me. If the bargain hunter is not going to come in when you're priced at the top of the dot because they think, oh, well, that's that's also way too high. I'm not going to make an offer right away, certainly, because I don't want to pay that much. So I'll wait, you know, and see if it sticks around. And I often advise clients, you know, let's keep an eye on this one. I think it's overpriced. Let's wait till they start dropping the price. And when they start dropping the price, that's when sellers are susceptible to a price that is lower than even the now the new asking price. But that's, like I said, this this unit I was talking about before around the corner from mine, it's going to sell, right? And and I'm sure it'll sell for a good price. Um, it'll be in, you know, in the fuzzy dot. It'll be a market price, but it's not going to be both because, you know, it won't be at the top end of the dot and because of the, the readjustment of expectations along the way, it'd just be harder for the sellers to swallow. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's other factors. It's it's hard to always know what's going on because there, there's what's in the mind of the seller. There's uh, competing advice that they have. You don't know their situation as well. Some people have a situation of we want to sell this right away and we'll do what it takes. Other people have, a, you know, we're not in a rush. We're willing to, to try it now, try it again later. Uh, so there are different circumstances that can also drive different strategies. For sure. Um, and, and there's also a strategy of, you know, we're going to try this in the fall at a higher price and see if we get it. Um, but we understand that if we don't get that, we'll try a different strategy in the spring. Um, so there's more than one way to approach it. So I guess the overall message, pricing is hard. Um, there's different strategies and you have to mix both the strategy for the buyer and the strategy for the seller can be different in different seasons and based on what you want. And that's where you know, we're guides, essentially. Like we try and give the guidance of, okay, to get to your goal and based on your priorities, this is the advice that we would give you. If you had a different priority, this is the different advice that we would give you. No, that's exactly right. I think you raised, that's a very important point because there are some people, you know, and again, this goes back to, to the seller's expectations, right? Sometimes people are afraid to leave money on the table. And they say, no, I want to start at the high end of the range because I want to, you know, there's this notion of anchoring in negotiation and it's real, right? When you put a number out on the table, it does set um, a value in people's minds. And so people are afraid justifiably to anchor low because, you know, it, it that breaks only in specific situations like, you know, a competitive real estate market. But so I've had clients who I've given the advice. I said, this is where I think we're going to end up. And this is how I think we're going to get there. And they've told me, you know, well, you know, we live in a world where people are just throwing money away on things like NFTs and 
cryptocurrency and we think people have lots of money, so we don't want to undersell ourselves, so we want to price it high. And I, you know, I've told that's that's fine. It's your home. It's your strategy. Um, we can price it high, and then we can sort of float it down gently, you know, and and find that market price. And almost to a property, when that happens, we wind up pretty close to where I said we're going to be. But but I don't fault those sellers for doing it that way because that's the only way they're going to be happy with the outcome, right? And in, in other words, if a seller knows they're underpricing and gets a great offer, but feels like, oh, you know, if we had only priced it higher, maybe we could have done better, then they're disappointed anyway. So you have to be sensitive to how the seller wants to to play this, as you say. And, um, you know, my sellers are generally happy that, yeah, we, we tested the market at a certain price and we, you know, we brought it down little by little till we found our market price. And if that is in line with their priorities and their timeline, that's great. Yeah. You know, the other hard part, the specific problem Zillow had, they, they had to decide what price to pay for the houses. So that's that's just the first order problem. And that that's even the easier one, right? Like they're going to say, okay, we think it's worth uh, 100, we'll offer you 93 or some discount on, on what they think the actual market price is. Then they do the renovations, uh, which means that now they introduce all the variability and, and trouble with how we're going to fix it up so that we can sell it quickly and managing contractors and all of that. And it, we've talked about renovations many times and yeah, that brings its own set of challenges. But then the third challenge, and this is the one where it sounds like they really uh, had trouble was how do you predict a price in the future? It's hard enough to predict what the market price is this weekend. But how do we predict the price even three or six months out? That that's a, a whole new problem, and and that's um, it's just a one quarter. You know, when the market's going up, everyone looks like a hero, right? Like you, right. you know, someone that that bought something, and we've all <laughs> know people like this who say, "Oh, I bought um, I bought Bitcoin in 2010." And like, great, good for you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're a genius. <laughs> you're a genius, uh, and maybe they are. <laughs> um, I, I went to the casino and I bet on the odd numbers, and I won. <laughs> right, like as long as you win, you win. Um, right. But when the market goes down, so one quarter they were up five or six percent. The next quarter, Zillow lost five to seven percent. Uh, another thing, going back to sort of the temporal changes, the it's, there's the seasonality. There's also the larger market forces. Right. Well, what's what's funny about what you're saying is also you kind of wonder if they just didn't stick it out long enough. Right. If they, you know, they, if they bought in the spring and they're trying to sell in the fall and their market's anything like ours, that's just wrong. Right. But if you buy in the spring and you sell the following spring, maybe you make your money. So it could they really did not give this a whole lot of time. But on the other hand, they bought a lot of volume. I think they were thinking, you know, low margin, high volume. And they started to see those even low margin losses or maybe higher margin losses piling up and they freaked out. But, uh, you know, it's possible that if they had had you know, a little more fortitude and a little more faith in what they were doing, you know, the story could have had a totally different ending. Yeah. Or maybe the maybe their original play was they thought they could actually control the market. You know, what percent of the market uh, of the inventory do you have to have complete control over to affect the prices? You know, there is some number to that where, where they're not going to be a monopoly, but have enough market power if they control I don't know what that number would be, but say they they owned you know fifty percent of the houses that were for sale. Uh, if, the, if they didn't like the prices, they could just keep them off the market. Choke the inventory, right? Yeah. Right. Um, I wonder if that was the play that maybe they thought they had more market power than they actually did. 
Right. But again, they, they maybe could have gotten there, but you know, it is a public company. They have to report results. They weren't looking so good. And so they, you know, they bailed out. And the question of course, for Zillow, not that, not that our listeners care about the health of Zillow is sort of, they are looking for growth. So where's that going to come from? Cause this is, you know, they've, they pretty much shut this down. So yeah. uh, I will say there's a lot of uh, schadenfreude in the, uh, in, real, in the realtor community, I think, because a lot of us um, uh, compete uh, for attention online in particular with uh, the, the, the behemoth that is Zillow. It's true. It's true. And they, they, you know, they're very polished. They've been around for a long time. They've got a big name and it's, you know, we have to always educate our clients that like Zillow is a, you know, it's a lovely place if you want to see a bunch of property on a map, but really you got to take their data with a grain of salt. So you know, this here's another another talking point when that conversation happens. I guess. Yes. Well, we'll we'll keep following on the uh, iBuyers, and uh, for now, <laughs> they're far away from New England, but we'll keep an eye on them and uh, update everyone if if we see anything else interesting going on with that. Yeah, yeah, and if, as, as always, if you have any questions or comments or things you'd like to hear about on the podcast, please shoot us an email. We are at info at accentbrookline.com. Thanks, and until next time, bye.